Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. We acknowledge and we celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and we pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people past and present. Colleagues, friends, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Security College here at the Crawford School here at the Australian National University and a particular welcome to our colleagues and collaborators in this evening's event from the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre in the Coral Bell School also at ANU. I'm also especially pleased to welcome some of our distinguished guests, notably uh, the ambassadors of uh, Philippines and Norway, uh, and senior diplomatic representatives from the missions of uh, Vietnam, the United States, Indonesia, France, and Singapore. I think that's an indication of the global importance of the security issues that we're here to discuss tonight. Now, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Rory Medcalf. I'm the head of the National Security College. It was my privilege to be uh, recently appointed as the, the second head of the college uh, after Michael Lestrange, our, our founding head. The discussion that we will shortly have about the, is about the security challenges in the South China Sea, and this is in part a reflection of the evolving mission of this college. It's not only a training institution for the Australian national security community, and many of you are familiar with that training and some of our alumni are here tonight. But it's also a platform, uh, in my view, for a, a better standard of policy debate and policy understanding right across the spectrum of security issues here in Australia. And we can't afford the reality, uh, we can't avoid, I'm sorry, the reality that the South China Sea is ultimately an Australian national security issue as well as a challenge for so many other countries. Now this is for multiple reasons. Australia's security ultimately depends on a rules-based regional order and any damage to that order through coercion or risk-taking or unilateral assertiveness by any country, as we've seen in these contested waters in recent years, equates with damage to our interests. Secondly, Australia's vital lifelines and trade routes to and from our top three trading partners from China, Japan and South Korea run through those waters. Third, the tensions in the South China Sea are testing American resolve, American credibility and diplomatic dexterity. And America is Australia's ally, and therefore these are tests for us too. Fourth, as the region comes to terms with how to incorporate a powerful China and its legitimate interests, the way that China behaves when its interests brush up against those of smaller powers provides a test case for us all to watch very, very closely. And fifth, if tensions in these waters were to escalate into conflict, Australia would not be able to pretend that it's not our business. It will affect our interests no matter what. So this evening's discussion is enormously timely. Now, just last week, not far from here, uh, the South China Sea made global headlines when the commander of the US Pacific Fleet, Admiral Harry Harris, warned of the perils around China's so-called Great Wall of Sand. That is, of course, the rapid program of island building, including potential military infrastructure that is changing facts in the water 
and building a new status quo in the waters that China contests with the Philippines and Vietnam. Now, it's a pity, in my view, that the negotiation of a code of conduct to manage the tensions and the disputes seems to be proceeding with rather less haste than the work of those very efficient Chinese bulldozer drivers and dredge operators. Now, the Admiral's speech could perhaps have been more delicately worded, but in my view, his point was a reasonable one and not an intrinsically dangerous or escalatory one, as some observers have been quoted as describing it. A similar point has previously been alluded to by Assistant Secretary of State Danny Russell and is now being repeated, perhaps more diplomatically, uh, by Defence Secretary Ash Carter on his timely visit to the region. The island building is a new kind of provocation to which no country yet has a credible response. So tonight's event, as I've said, is timely. And my predecessor at the college and his team had, I think, very good prescience and judgment in commissioning the research project on which tonight's event is based. It's, after all, in a sense, a book launch uh, for an excellent collection of chapters, and I should, at this point, show the book, uh, an excellent collection of chapters by some leading experts in the field, uh, looking at political, uh, legal and regional security perspectives on the South China Sea dispute. I recommend the book, of course, published by Rutledge, but also its predecessor occasional paper published by the National Security College, which I believe you can obtain for a, a, a rather reduced price uh, uh, and a, uh, an important academic tome. Now, shortly, we're going to hear brief presentations from the editors of the book, uh, Dr. Leszek Dzinski and Professor Chris Roberts, and I congratulate the editors on this achievement, as well as from one of the contributors, Associate Professor Brendan Taylor, uh, the head of the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. Their areas of focus will include the perspectives of Vietnam and the Philippines, countries whose views must be counted as strongly held, just as those of China are. I should also give apologies at this point uh, for those of you who've uh, come here under false pretenses because my colleague, Professor Michael Wesley, head of the Coral Bell School and another of the book's contributing authors is unable to join us this evening, uh, but we'll have opportunities to engage with him on these issues uh, at a later date. I should note also that the book contains some particularly useful uh, and insightful uh, chapters or a chapter on legal aspects of the dispute from Professor Don Rothwell, head of the school uh, of, uh, at the ANU College of Law. And I again look forward to our opportunities in the future to conduct a future event with uh, Professor Rothwell to look more squarely at the legal aspects of the disputes, uh, particularly the Philippine case uh, for arbitration and China's own interpretations of uh, the law of the sea. So to conclude my opening remarks and to open up a, um, a wider set of presentations and discussion, I want us all to think about five questions. First, what are the security risks arising from continued tension in the South China Sea? Second, what are the contours of a possible resolution to these disputes? Thirdly, is resolution a realistic option? Fourth, do dispute management and confidence building measures comprise a more feasible set of options for preventing conflict? Uh, and how would these work? More feasible, that is, than, than resolution. Is resolution, in fact, a pipe dream? And finally, what are the options before the international community if the present situation, including the island building, continues? So five questions for us to ponder as we listen to the presentations from my colleagues. After their presentations, uh, and that is presentations from, uh, from Leszek Buzinski, from Chris Roberts and from Brendan Taylor, 
I look forward to moderating a discussion on these and other questions, and we'd really like your contributions to that discussion. So just a reminder, the event is on the record. Please switch off your phones if you haven't already. Um, what you ask and what you say is on the record, and that's, um, that's I think, very valuable for transparency in this discussion. Uh, I do, of course, encourage tweeting, so if any of you uh, are looking at your phones during the discussion, I know you'll be doing it for the right reasons. I will now uh, invite our first speaker, uh, Dr. Lezek Bozinski, to uh, take the stage. Well, I'm very pleased to see so many turn up at this book launch. Um, I want to, I've sketched out a few ideas that I want to present to you today in the very limited time I have available. First is why this project was launched and what we were concerned about when we approached the previous director and asked him for support which he very kindly gave. Why the South China Sea? Let me then make a few broad remarks, because it isn't, we see it as multidimensional, has two essential dimensions. The first is that it is a matter of legality. There's a legal issue involved for the ASEAN claimants Vietnam, the Philippines in particular, less so Malaysia and Indonesia. Indonesia doesn't consider itself a claimant, less so Brunei, because they seek to have their claims supported and confirmed by international law and UNCLOS. The other part of the story is China, whose legal claim is of very dubious value. And bases its claim upon the so-called nine-dash line, which doesn't meet legal criteria, and historical rights. And we have a tension between these views. One is, or approaches, one invokes contemporary international law and UNCLOS, which China has agreed to support, and the other is based largely, but not entirely, upon so-called historical rights, a very dubious nine-dash line. And so we have a China that is what, raising or uh, resorting to what I call the power of insistence in order to have its claim accepted by others. And why go to such lengths? What is China doing? I've looked at this issue for many decades, since it, since it blew up for ASEAN in 1988, when there was a, a clash between Vietnam and China, and ASEAN became worried about this issue. We see consistency in China's approach, and we wonder why. Why go to the, to the lengths of reclaiming these reefs, building possible airfields upon them, and so forth? Because this is an area of potential strategic rivalry between China, the US, and China, Japan. I would hesitate, and I would, certainly will not use the word crisis. There are some observers of the South China Sea who talk in terms of an imminent crisis, potential war, and so forth. All that I regard as rather fanciful. 
And what I mean by strategic rivalry, the word strategic is a very hackneyed term. It's often bandied about without explanation. And what I mean is that there is a contest for positional rivalry over rivals or potential rivals using the South China Sea. And there are two such areas in East Asia. One is the Korean Peninsula, and the second is the South China Sea. Taiwan drops out of the area. But I see linkages here. As regards the South China Sea, dominance over the area would give China control of the trade routes and would possibly deny what the United States seeks to protect in that area, which is freedom of navigation. Dominance of the area would also allow China, China's Navy egress to the, into the Taiwan Straits, Straits to meet or to counter uh, an American effort to protect Taiwan in the event of conflict with the mainland and would also allow the Chinese Navy access to the Malacca Straits and to protect China's oil lifeline. Now, if you look at China's maritime geography, you look at it from the point of view of the Navy, there are a few points where China's Navy can have access to the external sea, the wider ocean. Not from the north, because that is where Japan is building up its Navy, a dangerous place. Not in the center, because you have Taiwan there, which is linked to the US, only the south remains. Look at it from the naval perspective. And given what the Chinese have said about the importance of protecting their oil lifeline, the slocks, um, the South China Sea becomes an important area. In order to preserve access to the open sea for these purposes, there's a connection with Japan again. It involves Japan, not just the US. We cannot cast this issue entirely in terms of Sino-US rivalry because dominance over this area would give China uh, a way of squeezing Japan. When you link the Sengaku-Dayu dispute and the rivalry between uh, Japan and China with the South China Sea, you can understand how Japan looks at the issue and why Japan is indeed concerned. Now in the book, we looked at China's claim. Because the Chinese claim indisputable sovereignty and that the area is ancient Chinese territory, both claims are of very recent origin, hardly ancient. Because dynastic China had little contact with this, with this area. And an analysis, cartographical analysis of maps Chinese, British, Spanish, French maps, some of which are in the National Library here. They show that the area was outside dynastic China's area of interest. It was a maritime frontier. And in the, with the border, in the Ming dynasty, dynasty at least, following the coastline. So what we have is China, a China which is relying upon the power of insistence, as I put it, 
the orchestration of maritime surveillance agencies to obtain acceptance of a dominant position in the area and to have that position accepted by ASEAN without fighting, simply by incremental steps intended to wear down resistance from rivals or opponents, Vietnam and the Philippines, and to have them eventually accept what they may, they, which, uh, and to have them present the inevitable. This is very much in keeping with uh, what has been written about Chinese strategy and the way China operates to avoid war, but to press on uh, in order to, uh, to secure one's position without the risk of conflict. In the book, Zhang, uh, Zhang Zhang, who wrote on China, wrote that China is positioning itself for negotiations over the issue and may in time, negotiate when the circumstances are, if they are favorable. He doesn't go into when they will be favorable, but it's a question we can ask. We had Renato de Castro in the book, our Philippine colleague, who argues that the loss of Scarborough Shoal to China in 2012 was a classic low-key non-violent way of squeezing out, pushing out the claimants. China obtained this shoal with minimal cost. We had Do Tanhai, who's seated in front of us, another contributor, who wrote on Vietnam and the Vietnamese claim and how Vietnam indeed struggles with this issue. We had the legal perspective from Don Rothwell, who examined uh, some recent developments in international law and how they affect the issue. And we had the American perspective from Ralph Emmers, who looked at the American pivot, the Obama administration's pivot into the area, which was, to a large extent, stimulated by events that we have discussed and perhaps will be discussing today in the South China Sea. The future. We have a chapter which covers the future. And the Philippines, let me mention that the Philippines appealed to an arbitral tribunal under Annex 7 of UNCLOS to clarify China's claim and its rights, the rights allocated to it to resources within its exclusive economic zone. Now, that was indeed surprising for the Chinese. I was in the Philippines, Manila, recently asking um, uh, Filipino lawyers about this, about their appeal. And it seems that the Chinese were very much surprised that the Philippines would do this. They wanted the Filipinos to be quiet, like the Vietnamese or the others, not to raise the issue publicly and not to embarrass the Chinese. But the Filipinos are a nation of lawyers. Everything is public for them. They will go to law. Now, it seems to me, and it seems to some of the legal experts I've spoken to about this appeal, that the tribunal is unlikely to wash its hands of the issue. It may be tempted to, there may be 
uh, a temptation on the part of some to do this, say, look, China is a big power, this is a complicated issue, we don't get involved, China has uh, claimed that the tribunal has no jurisdiction, therefore uh, no decision will be made. But the tribunal is, at least the judges, justices in the tribunal, are all very familiar with UNCLOS, have lived with UNCLOS all their lives, all their professional lives. And if they avoid this issue and the legal issues raised, UNCLOS will have little value. So it seems to, to me and it seems to others who have looked at this issue that the tribunal will have to examine and cannot and not and we'll have to avoid the temptation to skirt around the issue, we'll have to examine Philippine rights to the exclusive economic zone. And those rights have been guaranteed, assured by UNCLOS. And that is where the trouble is with China. It may avoid the issue of the nine-dash line, which is also part of the Philippine appeal, because China has not presented documents supporting that issue. But it cannot avoid the issue of Philippine rights in the exclusive economic zone. China may accept the ruling and work towards a legal settlement and bring its position in line with law. That is the best case scenario that a China in the future may do that. Because it will benefit, ultimately benefit from law as a major trading power and as its economic interests and investments abroad become vulnerable to disruption, it will be in China's interest to reach to law protection. However, perhaps it's too logical for politics in China. China may not forge or may, they, an internal consensus. An internal consensus, which is extremely difficult in that kind of political situation, may not be forthcoming over this issue. And it may ignore the ruling. It may slide into legally unsustainable positions as it becomes more assertive in trade, intellectual property protection, as well as maritime disputes. That's the worst case scenario. If that happens, then I think China's actions and China's assertiveness will stimulate the form formation of coalitions, security relationships involving the aggrieved ASEAN claimants, not just the United States, but Japan as well. And on the outside, India. It will bring together various combinations involving external powers, regional claimants, and, and part claimants, as uh, I would put Indonesia in that area. In that worst case scenario, regional security would be the worst for it. And at that point, I will stop. Thank you very much. Good evening. Uh, first of all, I'd just like to start by thanking uh, Rory for his very kind uh, remarks uh, and, uh, and introduction. 
and also to thank the National Security College for the research grant that was provided that led to uh, both the, uh, the occasional paper, uh, conference, and eventually this, uh, this book uh, on the uh, South China Sea, uh, as well as the field work that uh, uh, Lezek and I participated in uh, that also contributed to uh, some of the content in uh, what I hope are uh, some of the key uh, uh, chapters within uh, the uh, book. Uh, Today I'm just going to, I guess, uh, give a, a bit of an overview of some of the key uh, developments without going into too much detail, uh, and then some focus on the regional implications, a little bit about the perceptions that we uh, uh, have come across uh, in the region uh, about these developments, and uh, uh, some brief remarks about the uh, implications. Just in terms of the importance uh, of the South China Sea, um, of, uh, for those of you that are less uh, familiar, uh, depending on what figures you look, up, uh, look at, up to 50% of uh, global trade uh, in uh, uh, travels uh, through the sea lanes uh, of uh, communication, uh, up to 50% of uh, hydrocarbons also travel uh, through this. So there are key issues, not just about the centre of the South China Sea, being open to uh, shipping, uh, et cetera, but also some of the uh, uh, straits, such as Malacca Straits, Lombok uh, Straits, and Sunda Straits. It actually represents 25% of uh, South uh, China Sea's protein uh, needs. That's through fishing. Uh, that's 10% of the world's uh, protein uh, requirements. So it's, it's quite a key uh, resource in, in terms of food. Uh, hydrocarbons, well, I'll uh, leave you to look at the book, um, uh, but there are, you know, a very uh, diverse array of uh, uh, estimates, and some of the highest estimates, perhaps unsurprisingly, come from uh, Chinese uh, institutes, which may also play into uh, uh, skewed perceptions about the importance of the region on certain uh, fronts. We've also seen a, a little bit of a, well, increased analysis about the importance of the area as a marine uh, environment, reefs, shoals, uh, etc., and the recent sort of uh, land reclamation that uh, was mentioned earlier being uh, 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 undermining uh, some, uh, some of, of that. You can see here a, a, a rough picture of, for example, the unilaterally imposed uh, fishing ban uh, each year uh, by China. Uh, and uh, just a list of some of the other recent developments, which I won't uh, uh, go into uh, detail with each of them uh, individually. But last year, we did see um, some uh, uh, disconcerting uh, events concerning the oil rig, deep sea oil rig 981 uh, by China. Uh, and we saw a, a, a fairly large, uh, or relatively very large protests within Vietnam leading to the deaths of some uh, Chinese uh, citizens. And this is a little bit of a taste, I think, of the uh, level of nationalism that is under the surface and is often an underestimated uh, component uh, of a number of the claimants. And I would put uh, the three top in terms of the risk of nationalism affecting policy being in China, Vietnam, and also the uh, Philippines. Uh, from the Chinese uh, uh, perspective, going into uh, Beijing, I guess, uh, two uh, years ago now, and also in, in looking at uh, public statements and scholarly analysis, etc. cetera. Um, there is the argument uh, within Beijing that they 
themselves are responding to provocations, um, uh, statements or submissions uh, under UNCLOS, uh, etc., uh, dating back to uh, 2008 or 2009. Um, the uh, US Secretary of State uh, at the uh, uh, comments at one of the ASEAN Regional Forum uh, uh, meetings as being an example of internationalization, uh, which is something that China really wants to uh, resist. And, uh, and I guess at, at, at uh, 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 another level, which is not uh, infrequent, the statement that China has indisputable sovereignty. Uh, if it's indisputable, there is no dispute, so therefore it can do anything it likes because it is actually its own backyard. Um, so uh, this becomes a somewhat circular argument in discussions, uh, say, uh, for example, that uh, Lesek and I held in uh, the South China Sea. So we used to hear the word creeping assertiveness. Perhaps we can say a kind of attempt, perhaps misguided if we look at things in terms of international law, a more strict interpretation of international law and what uh, 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 judges, etc., in say the permanent court of arbitration would actually see through uh, as a, uh, a strategy. Uh, but we do see the attempt to exercise effective control over uh, these and, and other shoals uh, and uh, reefs. Uh, and you can see the quote from one uh, uh, senior military uh, officer, general uh, uh, rank, uh, who stated, there will come a time when no one will remember that we not only rightly held sovereignty over the Paracel Islands, but also did control them until their occupation at the end of the uh, Vietnam uh, War. Uh, of course, there are different interpretations, but uh, from the League of Nations to the UN Charter, uh, we have uh, uh, the, the concept that there is no right of, of conquest. And so there's a whole debate associated with uh, 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 things like Woody Island, etc., as to uh, what is the right uh, position there in terms of uh, ownership uh, and, and how uh, that issue can be uh, uh, resolved. Uh, but as uh, 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 in line with this creeping sovereignty, you can see here an image of the various ships, which also included uh, PLA Navy uh, uh, ships uh, in this uh, image. And up until a few years ago, uh, the large so the consensus was that uh, the Chinese Navy was uh, staying out uh, and not uh, part of a coordinated effort, but we've seen uh, that change significantly in the, in the last couple of years. And here are some recent images from early this year of the extent of land reclamation uh, taking place. This is a, a picture or image of a Mischief Reef uh, area. Um, of course, other countries have also been, claimant states have been involved in reclamation over the years. It's not just China. Um, perhaps the one exception would be Brunei, uh, as far as the uh, five or so claimant states are uh, uh, concerned. Uh, this is uh, dredging as at uh, 2012 of Johnson uh, uh, Reef. Um, and uh, here we can see fiery uh, cross reef in the Spratly uh, a chain uh, of islands and the establishment of a possible runway, which uh, again, uh, I would argue, is, uh, has more of a strategic implication rather than a legal uh, implication. Um, it, it has the implication of being able to extend power, resupply efforts, uh, project power across the South China Sea, 
with some analysis arguing that there is at least perhaps a contingency in the future, a contingency uh, or a plan uh, to establish something like an ADIS, an air defence identification, identification zone, similar to what we saw uh, a few years back in uh, Northeast uh, uh, Asia. Woody Island, part of the Paracel Island uh, chain, is, is one of the sites of the most work and has gone on for the longest time, well before the recent sort of news uh, uh, coverage of, of areas concerning the uh, Spratly Island, but again, significant developments uh, taking place there. Also, we have imagery of, uh, uh, increased imagery of uh, PLA Navy ships and their presence in various locations in the South China Sea. And uh, some analysis to suggest that the, uh, one of the outcomes of some of the early reclamation in the last couple of years, uh, land reclamation has been the ability to have one uh, ship such as this permanently in the region on rotation, uh, but with the uh, increased facilities that China now holds, uh, being able to maintain a, a resupply of that uh, uh, vessel. But really, you know, in, in terms of just how much of a, uh, a, a challenge uh, in terms of security, et cetera. I think it's, it's useful to put in context, uh, for example, trends in military expenditure. If we look in the East Asian context from the CIPRI military database, China has uh, quite uh, an impressive, uh, if I can use that word, uh, rate of increase in its uh, expenditure. But if we take things at a global level, we still see uh, North America, US and Canada, well above uh, the total uh, expenditure uh, of uh, China, although China uh, coming uh, close to the total expenditure as of 2012 uh, uh, with uh, the uh, European uh, Union. But the story doesn't end there, because if we think in terms of, if I can sort of twist a term from economics, uh, when they say GDP and purchasing power parity terms, I guess I'll tweak that and, and, and use the term purchasing power parity differentials. So we're not comparing you know, oranges with oranges. What China <coughs> can achieve with its budget in terms of funding personnel, in terms of manufacturing uh, military equipment, in terms of designing new technology is a completely different, uh, pardon the, uh, the reference kettle of fish, um, uh, to uh, 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 say uh, what the US can do with uh, four times or, or whatever uh, the, uh, the, the money. So there, I think there needs to be some further considered discussion, of course, transparency and issue there. But just in terms of some of the achievements that uh, China uh, is making, for example, last year 50 naval ships uh, are said to have been uh, commissioned, uh, possible second aircraft carrier by 2018. We have armed Coast Guard ships uh, being uh, produced on an unprecedented scale. Uh, up to 10,000 tonnage in uh, size, uh, and statements uh, such as by Admiral uh, Locklear. Now, just in my last couple of slides uh, here, uh, I, I guess it's important to uh, 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 think about uh, uh, China's aim and what it could be seeking to achieve. Lesek has talked uh, in, in part about that. I, I think uh, if you... If we look at the stationing of Chinese assets, what's taking place, the whole picture, uh, it does at least point to some disconcerting uh, contingencies that uh, uh, agencies within Beijing, if not the party itself, 
uh, at least keeping in mind for use under certain circumstances, and I'll come to that uh, in a moment. However, uh, this is not without uh, uh, costs, and recent behaviour are not without uh, costs. We see Vietnam, for example, uh, entering into a contract and has received already part of its order for six uh, fast attack kilo-class submarines uh, from Russia and other countries uh, increasing their expenditure, not to a point of an arms race, but nonetheless uh, seeking to increase the level of deterrence against a future action uh, from China and perhaps to deter such actions in, in uh, the, the future. Uh, perhaps countries are seeking a little bit more strategic diversity, reassessing uh, their partnerships. We saw in the last couple of uh, weeks an enhanced comprehensive partnership uh, between uh, Australia and Vietnam entered into, which had uh, more than a dozen references to UNCLOS, South China Sea, regional security, etc. So we can see what is very much on the minds of uh, countries as they seek to uh, forge stronger relations, and I, I would uh, uh, find it hard to imagine that uh, recent events do not tie in, and certainly the specific reference to South China Sea indicates that one general mentioned to me in Vietnam that as far as uh, relations or uh, a shift in relations to be warmer with or closer with India uh, is concerned, uh, Vietnam started, if anything, 10 years too late, that they're seeking to uh, make up for lost time uh, uh, now. Um, we see a statement by uh, uh, Japan's uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, standing next to the Filipino President saying we stand shoulder to shoulder, uh, the, the interests effectively uh, stating the interests of the two countries, the Philippines and uh, Japan are the same and there's links to earlier comments uh, tonight uh, as, as well. Uh, we see the Philippines also uh, uh, raising or citing its treaty uh, with uh, the United States. Uh, a somewhat uh, awkward initial uh, response, uh, perhaps, or at least uh, uh, perhaps more accurately a hesitant uh, response, but a strengthening uh, uh, of uh, the US position in favour of the treaty over the last couple of years which I think is a natural response to other developments that I've highlighted, including uh, those uh, orchestrated by uh, Bei, uh, Beijing. Uh, uh, Vietnam, for example, is uh, looking at joint exploration with uh, Indian uh, and Russian uh, state-owned enterprises, which also raises the risk of, say, a cable-cutting incident by uh, Chinese uh, vessels as being closer to being an incident with the state uh, itself. Uh, policies of economic diversification, a 200% increase, it's still limited in the scheme of things, but a 200% increase in trade in recent years between Vietnam and uh, uh, India. Uh, meanwhile, on the other side, we may have some countries that are bandwagoning. In uh, 2010, the Chinese ambassador to Brunei stated that uh, that the two countries were negotiating a, a sort of a MOU on joint exploration. There's nothing stated for the next couple of years until it was announced in the last year or uh, uh, two. Um, and so this also links to what we have seen as a fragmentation of uh, what was some earlier unity and, and collective statements and uh, declarations in the 1990s uh, and the pursuit of a code of conduct that uh, led to a compromise position on the 2002 Declaration on Conduct of the Parties in the South China Sea. Uh, 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 we've also uh, uh, saw uh, the 
uh, inability of ASEAN for the first time of, in its 45 or 50 year history to come to the conclusion of a joint communique because of the uh, uh, insistence by the Philippines and Vietnam on certain references to recent developments at a uh, foreign minister's uh, uh, meeting, ASEAN foreign minister's meeting in uh, Phnom Penh in 2012. Indonesia played a key role in sort of uh, reconciling uh, that uh, uh, issue. But a, a situation of uh, carrots and sticks, uh, trade agreements, arrangements, uh, investments and aid to some of the smaller countries. And if you have a country like Laos, where the GDP is perhaps $6 billion or thereabouts, it doesn't take much of China's budget to have a significant impact and thereby influence uh, through its aid uh, and uh, investment. Uh, so uh, we also see uh, a very different alignments at the strategic level, uh, treaty partners of the US in the case of the Philippines to other countries that are much more closely aligned with the US. Now, I agree with Lesik that Indonesia is not officially a, a claimant uh, state, but we have in recent years actually seen a hardening of Indonesia's position as well in response. And this is a cost of China's uh, uh, actions, uh, where, for example, uh, various senior uh, defense officials uh, have stated that uh, Indonesia's uh, territorial uh, interests do conflict with the nine dash line with uh, China's maritime uh, 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 claims. Uh, uh, I uh, have been out to other uh, agencies such as out in Bogor and uh, in discussions and presentations with those or one particular agency, uh, uh, security agency out there, uh, the, the discussion was not uh, what role can Indonesia play, how does it actually defend its interests. The one agency that steadfastly uh, states that it is not a disputant seems to be uh, the foreign ministry or Kemlu at this uh, point in time. It's perhaps a useful diplomatic device because if you look at the Natuna gas field, the continental shelf, the EEZ, uh, et cetera, does actually conflict with the nine dash uh, line. Uh, so, uh, but by being a neutral, honest broker as such, perhaps Indonesia has been able to play more of a, a role uh, than it, it might otherwise have had. And so there are, there's an important debate to be had there as to what path and direction Indonesia should take in the future. Second last slide uh, uh, here, uh, just in terms of the, the factors mitigating the risk of conflict, of course, I've mentioned the, the damage to China's reputation, the strategic repercussions. Uh, of course, China is not independent of the global economy. Uh, it also relies on, on many factors associated with this, including investor confidence, et cetera. Uh, 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 both my uh, predecessors tonight have referred to international law and UNCLOS. If a country is exceptionalist with regard to its legal obligations as a signatory state to UNCLOS, uh, how does one trust with regard to its obligations uh, under WTO or, or other uh, areas? So this uh, also has uh, ramifications for assessments of risk uh, on a much more comprehensive uh, uh, basis. Uh, then, of course, uh, sometimes it's, it's uh, forgotten, but uh, there are similarities in the two uh, socialist systems between uh, Vietnam and uh, uh, China, uh, and there is a long history of relations, and there are mechanisms, etc., to uh, that can come into play uh, to reduce tensions at appropriate uh, junctures in time. Um, 
uh, the, other, the other issue is perhaps more recent assessments by Beijing itself of the counterbalancing that we're seeing within uh, the region. And then there is also the cost for, from a Chinese perspective of say, greater third party involvement, whether that's say in a diplomatic level by uh, Australia and uh, perhaps uh, through that enhanced comprehensive partnership or uh, other developments that uh, we've already had noted with regard to Japan and the United uh, States. So for my final, uh, 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 oh, sorry, this is actually second last slide. Uh, in terms of Beijing's uh, uh, contingencies, I do think we can uh, see that under certain circumstances, well, it, that it is actually an actively pursuing a blue water uh, naval uh, or a projection uh, capacity. Uh, the projection of power across the entire subregion through these land reclamation uh, activities. Um, there may be calculations here, there's often an assumption about, or, or too much focus in my opinion, between what China does, how the US reacts, etc. There may be, and this may be a misguided uh, 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 position, but there may be a belief within certain quarters that certain actions, especially if it's done on an incremental basis, uh, can be uh, maintained below a level uh, that would incite a US or Western uh, collective response. Uh, so if the US is kept out of the picture, then what uh, position do the navies of, say, Southeast Asia have to resist anything that China has in some form of grand uh, strategy, to use uh, uh, Brendan Taylor's sort of uh, uh, terminology in, in some of his uh, informative articles on, on a variety of, of uh, subjects. Uh, it, uh, in the other side of the coin, however, is uh, we are dealing with authoritarian countries uh, in, in some instances, in the case of, of, of uh, China, performance, legitimacy, continued economic growth, the continued advancement of people's uh, uh, way of life, uh, 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 lifestyle, etc., is key. Uh, this can tie into the uh, issue and calculations about the importance of access to energy uh, and resources. Nationalism, as I've already mentioned, uh, linked to this identity, is a problem. One uh, uh, Peking University scholar said, if you ask a 50-year-old on the streets of Beijing to draw a map of China, um, he will draw a map of mainland China. If you uh, ask a 20-year-old, he or she will draw a map uh, with a giant sort of tongue hanging down. Uh, that is the uh, China and the South China Sea. This is part of every student's education, uh, according to this uh, uh, professor. This may create a kind of uh, uh, trap uh, to which even in the future, under circumstances, there might be circumstances where the, uh, uh, the central party uh, wish to make a compromise, but what is their capacity to do so without a significant domestic backlash? Uh, and so therefore we have this kind of uh, stalemate uh, occurring between the parties uh, to this dispute. On top of that, it's identity uh, by leaders and beyond as uh, sort of uh, perhaps seeking to reassert its Middle Kingdom uh, status from centuries and millennia uh, past and, uh, and also uh, uh, respond to or, or overcome or, or whatever uh, its so-called century of shame or, or paraphrases thereof. So final slide uh, uh, here, um, I think it's safe to say we will continue to see uh, regional disunity. In fact, I think as, as someone who primarily specialises uh, in ASEAN, the, uh, the outlook 
uh, in the political and security spheres of cooperation for ASEAN is increasingly dire, uh, given the political uh, uh, and strategic nexus between economic relationships and also uh, uh, strategic relationships. And this is not separate from uh, issues of whether you are authoritarian or democratic, either with some exceptions. Uh, uh, we, we also see, and I think this ties in uh, with Lesek's uh, comments, increased connectedness between Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, Japan, etc., uh, and South Asia, uh, India, uh, uh, for example. And so this connectedness also ties into the greater uh, uh, risk of great power uh, involvement. Indeed, perhaps the South China Sea can be seen as a kind of proxy, uh, perhaps for reasons that it is seen as being lower risk, which may in fact uh, end up uh, being the, uh, the opposite, uh, but as a proxy for some of the strategic rivalry uh, and easier to play out, again, a misassessment uh, than say uh, in other uh, parts. Uh, uh, societal stresses, desertif uh, desertification, environmental degradation, corruption, uh, uh, etc. Will also play into the predictability of China's uh, behaviour, its planning. Uh, even within uh, uh, China, some people concede the idea or the concern that certain aspects are reactionary, although I think overall we are seeing very coordinated activity between Coast Guard, military, etc. And certainly, I do also re emphasize earlier comments about South China Sea being a test for future uh, Chinese uh, behaviour. Um, as a great power. And, and so this is something that is of particular importance to Australia to see how responsible it is and how uh, it uh, reacts. And some of the statements I, uh, uh, and Lesek as well, uh, heard in Beijing were very disconcerting uh, in uh, this uh, regard. And for Australia itself, I do worry that we see not just what's happening in the South China Sea, but issues with Japan, uh, etc. And yet, uh, last financial year, 36.7% of our exports went uh, to uh, China. Um, uh, my uh, colleague Andrew Carr uh, uh, just uh, wrote to me today and, uh, and uh, also highlighted that 50.1% of Australia's total exports are minerals and, uh, and uh, fuel, such as hydrocarbons, uh, etc. And I think there's an important debate to be had uh, uh, in... in uh, maybe reassessing some of the presumptions of the Australian economic uh, model and the sustainability uh, of our current uh, uh, pathway or trajectory, given that uh, what will remain for the future is the fact that the US is our key uh, uh, security ally, and how does this sit, or how will this sit, uh, if we have a situation in the future where perhaps for the world, uh, to have a slightly alarmist uh, uh, tone uh, here, uh, comes closer to some formal level, hyper-potentially, uh, of uh, peak global GDP. Uh, but certainly, if not that, uh, increased resource scarcity and competition over resources and increased pressure over economic development, uh, both in the developed and uh, developing uh, worlds. If we think about global climate change and other issues and bring that all into the picture, we've actually got a very challenging few decades or next uh, century 
ahead. So hopefully that might provoke some questions for later on. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Rory, for the opportunity to, to co-host uh, this evening's event and also um, congratulations on your appointment as head of the NSC after being friends from afar over many years. It's, it's really just uh, so exciting to have you, you here and to be working um, together. And it's also a privilege to be able to uh, share the, the podium with um, two such long-standing friends, uh, Chris and, and Leshek, on their very special um, evening tonight. I think that um, Chris and Leshek have, have really done a, a wonderful job um, really highlighting just how assertive Chinese behaviour has come, come over the past half decade or more in the South China Sea. I think few, if any, in the room would would dispute that proposition. I think often less acknowledged, however, is, is just um, uh, how much more assertive um, Australian thinking and approaches to the South China Sea um, has also become in recent times. Um, it's, it's just over two years ago, uh, on a night like, like this, in fact, and just, just down the road at the ANU, that the then Foreign Minister, Bob Carr, gave a speech in which he reiterated that it was Australia's position not to take sides in the South China Sea disputes and where he outlined a number of options in which uh, the claimants might productively move towards managing their, their differences. Today, when officials refer to the management um, of the South China Sea disputes, it's, it's much more in terms of, of deterring China, uh, of opposing and, and resisting uh, Chinese um, coercion. And this is matched by a, a, a policy and, and public debate uh, that's also become much more hard-edged in, in terms of, of how Canberra should be approaching the South China Sea. Now, now part of the reason for this is, of course, that we've, we've had a, a change of government, a couple of changes of government during that, that period. And, and let, let's be clear, be clear, as Leshek and Chris have said, um, part of this is also a product of the fact that, that Chinese behaviour has become more assertive during this period. But what worries me, though, is that this really quite significant shift um, to the, the approach um, that, that Australia is, is taking is, is based upon three underlying assumptions, each of which I think is, is quite questionable and, and which haven't been subjected to sufficient scrutiny. And the first of, of those assumptions is that Australia has an active interest in the South China Sea uh, because of our economic dependence. This is an, an argument that's been made um, tonight because of the fact or, or the supposed fact that 60% of our trade passes through this, this body of, of water. Now, to be fair to, to everyone who's, who's used this statement tonight, it's a, or the statistic, it's one that's used very frequently, and I'm, I'm honestly not sure exactly where the figure comes from. But I do know, however, that it's actually very hard to make uh, these sorts of, of estimates. And by my own estimates, the 60% figure is actually rather suspect. And, and I'm, I, I make um, this, uh, this rather bold assertion for, for a number of reasons. I think if you look at, uh, at where um, Australian shipping to Japan goes, most of that generally goes east. Um, of, uh, of the Philippines and, and thereby is well clear of either of the, the China Seas. If you look at our shipping that goes to the north of China and to, to Korea, that will generally um, go through the East China Sea rather than the South China Sea. And it's really um, only our, our trade to southern China, um, Hong Kong and, and Vietnam, um, that most of that does pass through the, the South China Sea. And that, of course, includes the very significant LNG traffic uh, from northwest Australia to China. Well, taken together, um, that, that certainly sounds to me like a, a lot less than 60% of Australia's trade. And just as importantly, if you consider China's considerable dependence up, upon the energy trade in, in particular, it's hard for me at least to conceive of a situation in which Beijing would see benefit in actively seeking to obstruct the passage of that, that shipping. A second assumption driving the shift in Australian thinking on the South China Sea relates to the, the evolving balance of military power in this part of the world. 
Now, according to this line of reasoning, Chinese actions in the South China Sea are undermining the capacity of the United States to project power across this body of water. Because Australia has long had an interest in maintaining a favorable balance of power in Asia, the assumption here is that we stand the best chance um, of doing this by banding together with the US uh, allies and, and partners with a view to checking China's growing power and influence in the South China Sea. Again, I think this is a somewhat questionable assumption. It's certainly true that the People's Liberation Army has made impressive gains over the past two decades. And these have almost certainly shifted the balance of military power between China and a number of Southeast Asian countries, namely Vietnam and the Philippines. Yet I also think it's important not to overestimate what these gains have meant in terms of the larger US-China military balance. And I commend to you here a, a recent article that's been published by my SDSC colleagues, Paul Dibb and John Lee. In this article entitled, Why China Will Not Become the Dominant Power in Asia, Paul and John estimate that, that China is currently approximately 20 years behind the US in high technology weapons. They point out correctly in my view that the PLA is a force without any modern combat experience, including experience in the complexities of um, anti-submarine warfare operations. And even as China does play catch up, it's important also to point out that the US, despite its own considerable financial pressures of recent years, is a military that's not standing still as it continues to invest in technological game changes that could actually shift the, the US-China military balance further in America's favor in the future. Now against that backdrop, and looking at this from a purely Australian perspective, should we be banding ever closer together with like-minded countries as an additional way of ensuring against any shift to a less favorable regional balance of power? Not necessarily in my own view. It's worth making the point here that China's strategic coercion impacts very differently upon countries across the Asia-Pacific, and that most of these countries have very different motivations and interests at stake than we do. This fact alone makes highly coordinated approaches to Chinese strategic coercion very difficult to achieve. Japan and the Philippines, for instance, see Chinese strategic coercion more through the relatively narrow lens of their respective territorial disputes with Beijing. As Nick Bisley from La Trobe University and I have recently argued in a paper on the East China Sea, when responding to Chinese strategic coercion, it is critical for Australia to be careful not to be drawn prematurely into others' disputes, particularly in relation to issues or episodes where our own interests are not clearly at stake. Last but not least, a third questionable assumption underpinning Australia's shifting approach suggests that Beijing's actions in the South China Sea reflect a carefully calibrated grand strategy to establish a Southeast Asian sphere of influence and which is a strategy which is ultimately designed to evict the United States from the broader Asia-Pacific or, or the Indo-Pacific, a term that, that uh, Rory has been closely um, associated with. Now, this is a very complex um, subject, of course, and there are some in, in the audience, and including my, my very dear friend and, and colleague, Professor Richard Rigby, who really has taught me everything that I know about China, who are a much better place to comment on this particular subject than I am. And it may well be the case that, that Xi Jinping does have in his top drawer some grand plan um, locked away. But even if he does, I would argue that the gap between the conception and the execution of any grand strategy is a substantial one. One need only ask the Obama administration, or the, or the US for instance, which has been doing really serious grand strategy now for many decades, but which is struggling at present, I would argue, to implement what I think is, is quite a neatly conceived rebalancing of the strategy or, or pivot, as some prefer to call it, 
and the highly diverse and, and difficult Asia-Pacific region. So I don't think we should assume for a moment that China will find this task any less challenging. Indeed, China's greatest challenges in executing any grand strategy could well come from within. Some of you will have no doubt seen Linda Jakobson's excellent work on this subject, where she argues that Chinese coercion in the South China Sea is a product of what uh, she calls fractured authority. She's talking there about some of the domestic problems which drive China's South China Sea policies and which allow a, a myriad of, of maritime actors to push their own agendas. Many of you will have also seen a, a very controversial recent article by the, the respected China scholar David Chambar, in which he argues that significant political change in China could happen sooner rather than later, and that the end game of Chinese communist rule in China is already underway. Now in the final analysis, I think many would, would argue that these arguments go too far. And in raising them here, my aim is not to suggest that we simply all sit on our hands and wait for the morning where we wake up and find that China has disintegrated. Hope is never a good basis for, for any strategy, and I'm not sure that any of us, or many of us, certainly would hope for, for such an outcome in, in any case. Instead, the, uh, these arguments that are put forward by the likes of Jakobsen and, and Shambar do remind us of the importance of continuing to develop a much better understanding of the type of China that we are trying to influence, if that is the path that we choose to go down. For a strong China, will almost certainly react very differently to the same stimuli uh, than a weak and fragmented one. As we contemplate these questions and the other assumptions underpinning the really quite significant shift that I believe has taken place in Australia's approach to the South China Sea, Leszek and Chris's new book provide a perfect place to start. Thanks very much. Questions or comments, please, on any aspect of what we've um, spoken about this evening. Um, I'll take one up there and maybe one other one in reserve. Um, we'll start with you and we'll, we'll go to the next, please. And introduce yourself if you don't mind. Um, my name is Will, I'm from the NFC. Um, I was interested in uh, Chris Roberts' point about the role of Indonesia and um, how it might act as like a mediator um, or a claim in its own right. Um, what do you think the role of middle powers might be in the region in terms of seeking out their own bilateral even arrangements to this crisis? Thanks. We'll take one more um, before, just so that you get a chance to have your say, everybody. One more question or comment from um, from the group. You've come here with all the answers already. Okay. Um, look, I might just add one to that mix as well. That is, it's really probably a question for Brendan because um, I, I think I appreciated your. Um, analysis, I guess, of the Chinese perspective, um, I didn't hear from you what you think a reasonable or alternative set of strategies from China might be. Um, what do you think is the, the best possible approach the region can hope for from China? I'd like you to think about that one while, um, while Chris answers the first question. Here you go. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think uh, uh, countries such as Indonesia have played a critical role if we look at uh, for example, uh, the, 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 the days and weeks that followed the joint communique in 2012. And uh, uh, Foreign Minister, then Foreign Minister Marty uh, Natella Gower, uh, uh, I'm told, uh, personally drafted the six point uh, plan in response and, uh, and undertook uh, something like, uh, in 72 hours, uh, trips to uh, Cambodia, uh, uh, Vietnam, uh, and the Philippines. Uh, to get a uh, uh, at least a, a sort of a compromise position 
uh, and to uh, alleviate uh, the tensions. And so that's an example of a country uh, that is a, is a uh, uh, you know, definitely a middle power, a rising, uh, emerging regional uh, uh, power uh, that has had a long history of, of, uh, uh, of a role. Uh, it, of course, represents one third of ASEAN in terms of both populace uh, and economy. So it also has that privileged position as a founding member and the first among equals, as the uh, Southeast Asians would say. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, combined efforts of other middle powers, including Australia, uh, perhaps uh, this uh, enhanced comprehensive uh, partnership with uh, Vietnam also sends uh, important uh, uh, signals, uh, together with many other activities and statements that Australia can, uh, can uh, make and, and be active uh, in, including exercises, etc., in the South China Sea uh, that will affect the overall cost-benefits analysis. Uh, by uh, China. So I think uh, any uh, 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 approach has to be plural. It has to be you know, multi-level, uh, multi-dimensional, legal, diplomatic, uh, maybe a few sticks and carrots, comprehensive uh, through multilateral institutions, through as many countries as possible, all sending as much as is feasible a common uh, a united uh, signal that uh, uh, sort of exceptionalist behaviour, uh, uh, breaches of UNCLOS, etc., is not something that's going to be tolerated and will have real and tangible uh, costs uh, for Beijing. Thank you. Thanks. And, and Brendan, my question about China's yes, perspective, yes. and maybe, maybe going also to the point about, um, you know, is the current Chinese uh, pattern of behaviour something that the region should accept? Mm. Um, and what are some alternative Chinese patterns of behaviour that we could reasonably expect? Yes, no, no absolutely, uh, Rory, and thanks for that um, question. And thanks also for not throwing me out of the room, because I know there's probably a lot that I said that you wouldn't uh, agree with, but we've agreed in friendly terms over many We're years. Which is, yes. <laughs> but I, I think, um, I mean, your question is, is, a very, is a very good one, and, and the way I'd, I'd react to that would be by... Um, the first thing I'd say is that the, the, I, I see China as, as very, very much a, a, a reactive power, or there are elements of, of, um, of reaction in its approach um, to things. And I think it's the sort of power that, that the harder it gets pushed, the harder it, it, it pushes, pushes back. It's not the only power to do that, but by virtue of its sheer size, I think when it does push back, the, the ramifications of that are often more uh, significant. And, and I think what we, what we see, and I think Chris highlighted, highlighted this very well in his remarks about land reclamation, that we see a situation at the, at the moment where I mean, China is, is guilty of a lot of the things it's doing in, in the region, but it's not the, the only guilty party in, in the region. I think that we do see elements of action reaction going on and elements of an emerging security dilemma. So, I mean, it's, it's easy for me to say sitting behind an academic desk, but I, I, what, I, what I would prefer to see would be um, a, a little bit of, of easing off um, and, and, and just um, for us to, to, to see what happens um, for a while. And I, I do think that we, we do have time on our, on our side um, I think that yes, I think that, I think that some of the um, uh, some of the discussions at the moment, certainly about the, I mean, these military outposts that, that China has established in the, in the South China Sea, I, I, I can see that over over time they could become very significant strategically and militarily. But I think at, at the moment that's that's not the case. I think we do we do have some uh, some time to see how the situation evolves. I think as, as Leshik's presentation. Uh, highlighted beautifully. This is, is a, a, a strategic question. It's one that I think is going to play out over a, not over the longer term, but certainly over a medium uh, term. And, and if we if we do ease off and, and see that that there is no change in, in Chinese behaviour, then I'll, I'll concede that uh, 
that that uh, that that you're right, and, that, and the next. <laughs> the well, that's that's a, that's a good question. Is that what and what is the time frame? And I, I don't have a good answer for that, but uh, um, but certainly trying to get away from this action reaction dynamic that I that I think is actually intensifying at the uh, at the moment, and that some countries in the region are actually looking to to see that intensify. Um, I think we're going to have another conversation about this. We'll reconvene, sort of, uh, hopefully, in the not too distant future. Uh, Les, a question for you, unless there's something, another question from the audience, perhaps. Um, yeah, we'll take it. Actually, we'll take one from the back, and then we'll take yours, George. We'll take both. I haven't seen your hand up, Richard, but I know it's there. We'll take three. One. And please introduce yourself, please. My name is Len Morris from NSC. I'm also a student here. And first of all, thank you very much for the uh, very interesting uh, public lecture. My question would be, how Japan influenced the current South, South China Sea situation, given that Japan holds strong interest in the dispute? And um, do you think that any approach Japan takes really influence Austria's position um, over the dispute, given the increasing strategic tie between the two countries? Thanks, we'll take that. And then um, Richard Rigby and then George Brennan. Richard. Okay, yeah, Richard Rigby, that's um, there, there are two observations that are, that are sometimes made, and I'd just like to see what the, anybody in the panel, how they react to this. And, and they're not necessarily my observations, so I'm trying very hard not to look like I'm being a panda hunter as well. So, <laughs> um, but these are observations that are not mine, but I'm aware of them for some reason. One is that China actually controls considerably less of what it claims as compared to any of the other claims. China's got big claims, but actually it's not actually controlling very, very much at all. And this is one reason for heightened activism, and that activism is further heightened by the existence of Antos itself, where uh, there's a necessity to prove that you are actually ineffective and so on and so forth, and perhaps they, they read back from their lack of activity over a considerable period, vis-a-vis the Diyos and Kakus as well, and think, well, we better not be making that mistake. We've got to show that we do so that we're being serious about it. So that's two things that are, that are said. I'm just doing something. The other thing, does anybody in the book say anything about Taiwan? Because Taiwan is obviously relative... Uh, um, it, it, the PRC claims are based on Taiwan's claims, which are actually marginally bigger. When I was recently in Taipei, we were sent personally by the president to go and look at the uh, exhibition that had been put on, you know, presenting those claims, their 12 dash line or the 9 dash line, because they see that you know, Chinese Communists is having given a bit too much to the Vietnamese. Taiwan still actually does hold a considerable bit of territory there, and it continues to replenish it militarily. Thanks. So, uh, one question on Japan, a series of comments and questions from Richard, and George will take yours as well, and then I think we might have room for one more. I want to give the panellists a, uh, a smorgasbord of questions that they can pick and choose from. So, George. Mine builds a little on, on Richard's, which is um, the Chinese would like this take on it, the, the complexity of, of Chinese internal dynamics. Um, you know, we're talking about China as a monolithic thing, which you know, we all understand it isn't. Um, and of course, the Chinese would be happy to see Taiwan fall up with that in that context. Um, so, yeah, there's Chinese. China is far more of a land power than a maritime power, and its uh, internal dynamics are, are complex. It has a nasty set of things all around its borders. Um, so, I'm interested in how people think that might play out. And as a related part of that, um, 
chime in on this one, Rory, the, how India's interest in the Chinese-Indian relationship um, might throw into the mix. Um, You've muddied the waters for us um, beautifully there, George. Well, they, they <laughs> um, Ashley Townsend from Lowy Institute, I saw you had your hand up earlier and put it down again, but I'm going to put you on the spot. I think you had a comment or question as well. Thanks, Rory. And not actually formally part of the Lowy Institute anymore, but um, Rory and I are working on a project on Chinese strategy in, in the region and, and uh, maritime security. I just came back from a research trip where a couple of these issues came up. Uh, there's a very strong sense, uh, as you all know, that China's restraint for 20 years has been abused by the other claimants in the region, and I got this from everyone I spoke to in China. Um, that's not surprising, but there is a dilemma that goes with that, that the Chinese themselves seem to be facing and don't quite know the best way to get out of. The dilemma is this. They feel that their restraint has been abused, and therefore there's a there's a need to to build something to catch up. As as Brendan articulated, they're far behind, but they're trying to respond to the to what others have been doing. The region is then pushing back and saying, "Well, this is illegitimate, even though what we've done before." And there's no space for a discussion on that issue. That's the first point. Is there a way for there to be some discussion? on the legitimacy of what everyone in the region has done over 20 years, for it all to be open and negotiated. Um, and secondly, following on from that, if that discussion is not possible and the only answer that comes from Washington and the region is arbitration, there's another problem because China doesn't recognize the legitimacy of the arbitration process in its entirety. And that's not just because it doesn't view arbitration as being uh, a, 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 an accurate venue, a good venue for discussing sovereignty issues, it actually has problems with the legitimacy of the laws and the courts and the individuals involved. So is there room, in the opinion of the panel, to open up the debate about arbitration more broadly to actually accommodate or at least discuss Chinese concerns and find ways to address them? Because there does seem to be some willingness um, for China to find a legal me mechanism by which you can start to talk about these issues. Thanks, Ashley. We've got um, a whole set of thoughts here for the panel to respond to. I'm going to ask Lezek uh, first. And Lezek, you can pick and choose from among those, but I would especially want to hear what you have to say on Japan. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think the question was, the direction of the question was, what's the link between Japan and Australia with reference to the South China Sea and would Japan's moves in the South China Sea actually uh, strengthen or uh, push Japan to develop uh, corresponding tighter relations, security relations with Australia? I think that was the gist of the, the question. It seems to me, yes, Japan is um, becoming much more involved under the um, Abe Shinzo government. And the Japanese are very concerned. They look at the map and they see China's moves uh, in the south and they see how China's moves may result, if that is, if China ends up by dominating the area, um, despite their assurances that freedom of navigation will be maintained, uh, the Japanese certainly will not trust, trust the Chinese with respect to, to that. And, they see that it will result in a very costly rerouting of trade and uh, shipments of oil around that area. 
and that worries them very deeply. So their moves are related to Vietnam and the Philippines, not Australia. Now, where Australia comes in uh, is over the Sengaku Daio issue. The Japanese have attempted to get uh, draw Australian support over that, that issue, and as Brendan has said, has mentioned that Australia has been uh, very reluctant to get involved over that issue. Um, the second point about uh, Richard Rigby's comment about China's claim is less than that of others. I just want to point out that. No, so the China, China, China is, is actually in control of much less of its claim than those of others. Okay, China controls the Paris Islands. Yeah. Okay. China controls the Paracel Islands. It also uh, has controls, uh, uh, controlled seven features, some say nine features, which it obtained after the 1988 clash with Vietnam. Now it sits on Scarborough Shoal, so you add another one. And Vietnam has, uh, has occupied more features than China. True, but um, China occupies more features than Malaysia or the Philippines. Um, so I, would, I don't think that China occupies less than the others, less than Vietnam, I agree, but not less than the other claimants. As regards Taiwan, um, yes, there was mention in the book about Taiwan's 11-dash line, uh, that the original 9-dash line in 1947, that original, original claim was, uh, had 11 dashes and then two dashes were removed uh, to conciliate Vietnam, and Taiwan continued with the 11-dash line. Um, and you mentioned uh, Taiwanese occupation of uh, Itu Aba, that key island, uh, uh, with, it, has, um, uh, it has a marine detachment there. And there has been some speculation as to whether or not Taiwan would act with Beijing in this area, since they have related, uh, related claims. But, as I understand the Taiwanese position, there was a, um, a Taiwanese official who said that Taiwan would not cooperate with Beijing over the South China Sea. We have someone from uh, a representative of Taiwan here who may like to confirm or uh, add to that. India's interests, no, that is a question for Rory. Um, the last one about arbitration. China's restraint and arbitration, legal mechanism. I personally think that um, China, I agree that arbitration is alien, uh, very uh, legal arbitration is very alien to the Chinese at this moment. It's, uh, Chinese society has not evolved as a legal society and legal mechanisms are distrusted. And uh, certain, so I don't think that China would respond very kindly to um, whatever the uh, arbitral tribunal would decide. So my own inclination is that China will, uh, at least in the short term, ignore the decision and perhaps lay the ground for some future acceptance. But um, the immediate reaction would be uh, to ignore the arbitral tribunal, and I can't see, on that basis, I can't see that how any legal mechanism could be established work with the Chinese, to work with the Chinese. They insist that history should be taken into account. Um, I've come across, I've spoken to some Chinese scholars about this, about their conception of law, that law should change, international law should accommodate, uh, and UNCLOS should accommodate Chinese historical claims. 
and law should not stay still, it should change, in which case, if it changes with um, every rising power's demands, uh, if you change it now, does it mean that next 10 years down the track you change it again according to new demands raised by China? The law has to be more stable than that. And they're demanding uh, changes to international law to accommodate the rise, and, and yet uh, many of the aspects that, uh, of law that they want to see change, they accepted previously. UNCLOS they signed on the line, and they ratified UNCLOS in uh, 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 2006 and 1995. And now as they become more powerful, they seek changes because um, they feel that um, uh, they should receive due respect from, uh, and that should be uh, accorded by international law. So the, their understanding is would, of, of law is, is considerably different from ours and uh, because it's meant to re reflect power relations and that would result in, in considerable instability. So I can't see how a legal mechanism, mechanism could be devised to propitiate the Chinese in the, uh, uh, in the way the question outlined until China understands the significance of law. Um, I want to add something else about uh, just a little reference here to about very, very briefly about speaking to Chinese scholars in Beijing, which we have done, I've done that for many years, because the Chinese scholars uh, in the various institutes uh, uh, live in a very rigidly compartmentalized system and know little about uh, the military, the PLA, or the, what the party is doing and what the party thinks. And I think that's one of the problems in reaching out to the Chinese. We may reach out to the scholars, we may reach out to the legal experts, though who are well versed in international law, but those who make the decisions are very often somewhere else. Chris, um, you were very generous with your comments earlier, so please be parsimonious now because yes, we're, sure. we're at to wrap up. Um, I, I, I agree about uh, uh, being a willing signatory to, uh, to UNCLOS, albeit with exceptions or exemptions made on, on certain aspects of, of uh, uh, arbitration. Um, uh, but nonetheless, uh, there are aspects uh, uh, that are clear, such as uh, a clause within UNCLOS that states that uh, no party to a dispute will uh, amend or change or threaten the status quo, uh, exacerbate tensions, etc. Uh, uh, in other words, they must uh, peaceful, peacefully negotiate a change. It is, uh, that, that said, it is true that uh, Vietnam, for example, occupies more features, but also, I guess, there's the question of quantity versus quality uh, as well, and uh, so the, the quality issue being uh, uh, forthcoming, if not already, airstrips, uh, et cetera, and uh, resupply uh, uh, surveillance capabilities, et cetera, beyond any other uh, 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 country um, uh, out there. Uh, 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 in regard to its willing willingness or uh, desire to reach a solution, we've seen a lot of, uh, to put it bluntly, some duplicitous behaviour within ASEAN, uh, where, uh, you know, there are statements sometimes where we, we don't want multilateral approaches. There are statements where, yes, we will negotiate a code of conduct. And then when the statements are made, uh, for example, instead of a senior officials meeting taking place to work on uh, certain aspects, it's pushed down to a lower level 
knowing that the people at that level within an ASEAN context won't have the authority to actually reach a conclusion that leads to anything, so it becomes just a, a stalling uh, tactic, uh, whereby maybe linking to an earlier comment uh, uh, today, when it does finally agree, if ever, uh, to some solution, the new status quo is well and truly within its favour and what it's to, uh, completely entirely uh, uh, comfortable uh, uh, with. And in regard to uh, uh, perspectives in, uh, in uh, uh, China uh, and the willingness to compromise, it's quite alarming when the head, for example, of a government-funded think tank sits there and states, uh, you know, we're not even interested in the central part of the South China Sea. I've had military generals in uh, some of the other, in one of the other claimant states saying that's open. We're willing to, willing to have a negotiation here. Uh, but this uh, uh, particular head said that uh, we're interested directly in the EEZs of the claimant states because that's where the accessible oil is. When I then asked, uh, that's transparency. Uh, that's transparency. Yes. Uh, when I then ask, uh, but that you know is completely contrary to any interpretation of international law. And why would anyone share? Uh, he said, "Well, we're offering 50-50 uh, percent share, uh, right down to." He didn't say the beach, but this is what it, uh, it, it uh, uh, meant. Um, and then I said, "But no one would agree to give something that uh, is absolutely not your." And then the statement came up, well, 10, 20 years from now, that 50-50 will be off the cards and we will have the capacity to just take it like that. So, so when you have statements and, and other statements that if they were to be public in the press would create you know, protests in Vietnam tomorrow. Um, uh, so you, when you have controversial statements recklessly given by people in very senior uh, uh, positions with responsibilities, that's uh, uh, somewhat uh, disconcerting. So I might just leave it at that. Yeah. Thank you. I'm hoping that that was one of the people who Lezek referred to earlier who actually may not know what's going on, but I have no, I have no judgment on that. Um, I, I respect our peers everywhere. Um, I'm going to leave the, uh, the last comment from the panel to, um, to you, Brendan, and um, I'll give you a golden minute. So. Okay. No worries, Rory. Um, and can I congratulate you on hurting three unruly academics so, so well. But just uh, very, very quickly, a minute in, in response to Len's question and Ashley's question. Welcome back, Ashley. It's great to, great to see you uh, um, again. Leon, I think with, with respect to everyone, anyone in the room uh, from, from uh, Japan, um, including your, your good self, I, I think Japan is, is part of the problem um, here. I think that um, for very understandable reasons, Japan is, is, a, is an extremely um, insecure position at the moment as the balance of military power between itself and, and China shifts. But once again, I don't think we should overestimate how quickly that is shifting, but I think it is very very clearly um, shifting in, in Chinese favour over, over time. Um, but I think um, Japan's involvement, growing involvement in the South China Sea, I think is, is, is really fueling, or one of the factors fueling this, this uh, intensification of the security dilemma that I talked about, particularly its assistance to, to Vietnam and the, and the Philippines. I think a little further away in the East China Sea, I think also Japan's uh, refusal to, to take its, uh, its own dispute with um, with uh, China over the Senkaku Dai Islands to, to arbitration, I think is letting China off the hook in the South China Sea. So, so I think we, we, if, if Japan were to, uh, to give a bit on, on, of ground there, which I think is unlikely, I think we, we, um, we, we could potentially see some, some movement. I think your point on Australia is a very good one. I think that we could, I think we are seeing the potential for, for Japanese behaviour in the South China Sea to, uh, to influence Australia behaviour to see uh, a degree of, um, of imitation on Australia's side. There have been some very respected analysts in this town talking about the, the possibility of Australia making its defence engagement more meaningful by, by providing more assistance, particularly in the form of patrol vessels to, 
um, to, to Vietnam and, uh, and the Philippines, for instance. I'm not sure, and Chris would be more of an authority of this than I would, but I'm not sure that's something that would be wholly welcomed across um, Southeast Asia, and it may in fact complicate our efforts to engage with, um, uh, with that particular um, subregion. In the interest of time, Ashley, I'll, I'll connect with, with you afterwards because Rory, I, I think the audience would love to hear your views on, on India and the South China Sea in, in a minute as well. No, I'll give you 30 seconds, uh, and I know we're eating into valuable uh, drinks and conversation time. Um, look, on India, but on external stakeholders generally, if I can call them that, I mean, you know, we can, we can argue about the numbers later about whose trade goes through the waters and how much of it and so forth, but I think there's no question that the South China Sea is globally significant as a, as, as a key energy and, and trade lifeline for a whole lot of countries. In that sense, it's not only about India or Japan or countries that are not, uh, I guess, Southeast Asian countries or climate countries. It, in my mind, the South China Sea is a global challenge. It is a global problem. The fact that we now live in an interconnected Indo-Pacific region and the South China Sea in a way is at the very heart of the Indo-Pacific means that this problem is going to remain everyone's problem, including our, our European friends, for that matter, uh, who, of course, have very large stakes in the, uh, in, in the trade uh, going, going through those waters. So um, I'm going to end on that very ambiguous note, I guess. Um, I'm also going to say that um, the college will continue to convene uh, both discussions and publications on this and related issues. Uh, we certainly are not home to one point of view. As you've heard tonight, we're very pleased to host a diversity of views, but I think what's important is we put this debate a little bit more squarely on the table. Uh, in Australia, it's not an issue that can be, can be brushed aside. It's not an issue that can be overlooked, uh, given all of our other security concerns. So thank you to my um, colleagues on the panel. Congratulations again to the authors of the book. And one last time, for the, um, for the record, for the camera, here is the book. Uh, there is also an occasional paper published by this college. Um, I invite you all to join us for, uh, for drinks and conversation. I also want to thank uh, my colleagues, particularly uh, Martin Blazik, our uh, communications and events organiser for putting this event together, and Andrew Carr from uh, the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. We look forward to seeing you again here at the National Security College very soon. Uh, congratulations and thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.